Hey up friends, how's it going? Matt here. Um, you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this episode. My word, feels like it's been a while since I recorded one of these. That's because I've been over in France at our new place in Normandy for the last uh, five weeks at the time of speaking. Head down, working away on two big old projects, which I'll talk about a little bit more at the end. Not that I've been podcast idle, as you'll know, if, you've, uh, if you're have if you a paid or free subscriber on my Substack. And if you haven't signed up as a free subscriber, then what are you playing at? I've still been dishing up the, the content regularly, the weekly 10 things dispatches, the weekly uh, guest blogs and blogs by me and the fortnightly podcast episodes. The last two of which were my interview with Gilly MacArthur and then a one-off preview of my new roundtable format, just this once, given that, that that will be exclusively for paid subscribers from this point. And I've also been braving my ridiculously bad French internet connection to record a couple of episodes while I've been out here. The first with Thomas Campbell will be out in September. I was going to put it out this week, but I think Thomas enjoyed the conversation so much that afterwards he asked if we could delay it because he wanted to give it a push. Um, not at the same time that his soundings chat with Jamie Brissick was out. So he was like, can we do it in six weeks? Because then, you know, that'll have been out for a while and I can give this a proper push. So that was nice and it's something to look forward to. And then I recorded this episode with legendary surf writer and author Matt George. So the way this one came about is Matt was introduced to me by our mutual friend Jamie Curry, um, Beach Grit, Beach Grit's finest, as we discussed in this episode. And uh, Matt emailed me asking if he could come on the show and talk about his new book, In Deep, a collection of Matt's era-defining surf writing taken from a period of about 30 years, really. So I was in, um, firstly, because I know Matt's writing and I'm a fan. And secondly, to be honest, because guests I'd actually like to interview emailing me and asking if they can come on the show has pretty much never happened it's actually pretty hard teeing up decent guests these days, given there are so many podcasts out there. And I think also, given how cerebral a furrow I plough over here, if you can forgive such a hideous mixed metaphor, I do get pitched a lot by people asking if they can come on the show, but 99% of them I would not be that interested in interviewing. And so much so that that's led to a bit of a running joke that if you asked to come on the show, you're disqualified. Uh, I made an exception for Matt. So we set about arranging a date and we had this chat. Now, if I may break the fourth wall a little here, which is something that I do quite regularly, I, I do quite like to, to explain my thinking when it comes to these interviews. Now, I recognised from the beginning that this was going to be one of those interviews where my job was to get the guest off their chosen conversational path. Keener listeners will remember my chat with Stephen Kotler the other month, who was shamelessly on the book promo tour. Now, I'm not saying we're in the same ballpark because we really aren't. And Matt George is a charming, sensitive conversationalist when compared to Kotler's wrecking ball approach. But I could kind of tell from our email chats um, and I could very much tell from Matt's conversation with David Lee Scales on Surf Splendor, which I listened to in preparation for our conversation, that this was going to require a certain approach. Here, clearly, was a very sharp, very, very clever, 
very practiced storyteller who had a clear message he wanted to convey and had all manner of tactics to employ in order to do so. Now, I respect it, to be honest. It's part of the job of being a journalist to, yep, think on three planes in this way. So I recognize it when I see it. And when I see a connoisseur, an expert as Matt George is, I, I doff my cap. And there was another layer to this too. Um, in his chat with David Lee Scales, Matt used the example of John John Florence to discuss how hard it was to get people to drop their guard in the interview context and reveal their true selves. He, there's a thread in that conversation and in this conversation about how the modern media landscape has basically made the job of a journalist. I'm not going to say harder, but it's different. You know, Matt, Matt refers to it in this chat as the five five day rule, I think. You know, the old the journalist gets to go and hang out with the person for five days and, and really get the goods. Those classic new journalism um, profile pieces. Um, you can't really do that anymore unless you write for like the New Yorker or a real real prestige legacy media outfit. And that's something that Matt talks about. And obviously that's the job of the journalist or interviewer to accomplish. So would I be able to give Matt the Matt George treatment to Matt himself was the challenge I set myself before this interview. How did I do? Pretty well, I think. I'll go into it a little bit more in the end, in, in Housekeeping Corner. In the meantime, I'd say sit back and enjoy this fast-paced conversation with the legend that is Matt George, the last of the surf romantics. Enjoy. How are you? How's Bali? Bali's fantastic. It's just a beautiful day here. And we just had the um, opening ceremonies of the Rip Curl Cup, which is, you know, the big tube riding contest at Padang Padang. And, uh, um, you know, I'm up on the microphone for that. And it's a lot of fun. And we have, um, and we're looking forward to maybe having the contest on Friday. Pretty stoked. Nice. Nice. And so Jamie Curry was the connection, was he? Yes. Yeah. And how do you know Jamie? Oh, I just appreciate his writing on Beach Grit, and we just sort of send back uh, little quips and quotes to each other. And uh, I've never met him in per- person, but, you know, we're both surf journalists, and I really like his writing. He's, he's uh, you know, he's really intelligent, and it's such a relief. Yeah, yeah, he's great. I think he's probably my favorite sort of surf writer, you know, modern surf writer, really. Cause, and I, I kind of wish he'd do more. Um, I mean, I know he does stuff for Surfers Journal. Um mm-hmm. And obviously, he does stuff for Beach Grip, but he's—I he, almost feel like he was born in the wrong era. He needed to be born in your era when he could have had the the outlets, you know. Yeah, I think so. The whole the whole different—it's uh, a whole different world, and, and uh, it, that's what's so interesting about this this book. I think is uh, what a different what a different world it is. You know? Do you see it as a bit of an artifact? Then do you see it as a bit of a a glimpse into the the kind of you know, like that, that period in time when you could, you could approach surf writing in the way that you base your career around? Well, no, I look at more like the last elephant, you know, it's, it's the last of a species because it's still contemporary. Um, you know, there's still contemporary stories in there and it's still important and vital. It's not just a walk down memory lane. Uh, but I do look at it as a bit of a, a, a last of a species. If in fact, all the threats, of AI and chat GPT are going to be coming to the forefront. And it is a little scary because 
I still teach creative writing at a university level. And um, these, these young students that come in, you know, they, they're illiterate. You know, they can't read, they can't write. Uh, you know, they don't know how to read or write or what to read or what to write. And, um, you know, it, it's really tough to try to play catch up with that. And um, so, no, I think this book is a very contemporary read. I think young people uh, should celebrate this book. Um, and I think it's a, a very important thing to know what has happened with something you're so passionate about. I always say that, you know, if you don't look into surfing, then surfing's not going to look into you. And what, what inspired you to, to pull, pull it together now? Like, why was now the right time? I wanted to get it in under the AI threat. And, um, and I was approached by a publisher who you know, was very enthusiastic. And I thought, bingo, the perfect opportunity. And um, it took us about a year to put it together, selecting the stories and editing and, you know, the uh, layout and artwork and all this. And um, I, 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 I am so excited uh, about the book itself because, as you know, I've made Hollywood movies and, and documentaries and films that never turned out the way you wanted it to. You know, the, the, particularly in Hollywood, you know, like it, the movies never end up the way you want them to. But this book is exactly, precisely what I envisioned. And it's very, very satisfying. Yeah, I'd really love to talk to you about the Hollywood stuff. Um, that brought to mind a quote. I think it's by like Peter Bogdanovich, maybe, where it's like a script is a, an invitation to collaborate that you hope the other people can read or something like that. And your, exper- your, your experiences sound, um, sound like you would appreciate the truth of that, that line. Um, yeah, I li- so I listened to your David Lee Scales podcast, which was really interesting. And you talked a lot about, you know, uh, you, you mentioned AI there. You mentioned the kind of, you know, the, the lack of literacy, if you like, that, that of people coming up. And you also talked about the the kind of dumbness of of surf discourse quite a lot, like the way that the way that it's spoken about now. Um, was that also a consideration you wanted to sort of put put this work, this this craft, long form, thoughtful, well researched, enough time, which is obviously a crucial element to what you do. As, did you want to put that as an antidote to this this kind of modern landscape that you identify? Yes, I, I thought it was important. I was really inspired by my students and the fact that this book, you know, In Deep, is, is the title is perfect. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it, everyone talks about a deep dive these days on the internet. Well, here you have it. And what makes this so interesting is it's like time travel as well because of the, the zeitgeist um, aspect of it where – since it's in chapters, since it's a, a series of published magazine articles, you know, it's still a good, uh, it's a good bathroom book, you know, and it's still a good um, simple read for modern readers because they don't have to read the whole thing at once. You can pick and choose what interests you and, and you capture the zeitgeist of these different times, you know, from the misogyny of the 80s to the, uh, you know, to the equality of today when it comes to female surfing. Um, uh, a baby Kelly Slater to a very mature Kelly Slater, all these other things that we all grew up with um, are, are presented in this book. And yes, it was an antidote to the goofiness that, that enrages me um, over the past, say, 15 years of how surfing is presented as one big joke um, right. and everybody's writing each other off. And the, the titles to all the website features are always goofy and uh you know it's 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 always poking fun and look 
I like a good laugh as next as, as good as the next guy. But when you have something as passionate as this is, I mean, people are as passionate about surfing as they are about flamenco dancing, you know, and, and it's, it, it deserves um, emotion and it deserves context and it deserves self-examination and, and not so much self-deprecation. Well, I mean, there's a huge, you know, I mean, Jack London and Mark Twain wrote about surfing, didn't they? I mean, even back then they recognized these things that you're talking about. So it, it's really interesting to, to sort of hear you frame it in that context. I, I mean, you mentioned beach grit just as a quick aside, like where does beach grit sit in that thing? Cause obviously Jamie stands out a bit there, but I kind of can't help thinking of beach grit when you're talking about, cause you know, when I look at something like beach grit, which is obviously like this huge platform in surfing, it just, it's not journalism, is it? It's, I mean, Jamie's work aside, I would say it's essentially like about driving traffic and, and, and revenue <laughs> at the end of the day. Like it's a, I mean, I, I, I count Chaz as a friend, like, so, you know, like I'd be pretty comfortable saying that to him as well, but it, it does a very different thing to what you're talking about. I think it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't treat surfing in the same way. I mean, is that, do, do you agree with that? Well, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm certainly not here to do a hatchet job on any website, but I mean, that is, it's cl- uh, both Derek and, and Chaz, they, they know what they're doing and they're very smart and they even, I mean, you know, Derek's a contemporary of mine and he's yeah. figured out and, and he's figured out the, the youth and it's, um, you know, it's clickbait and they know it yeah. and, um, you know, it's a lot of fun and it's goofy it's clever. And, uh, it's it, it can be clever. I find it uh, it can, it can it leans towards the crude too much for me. But I'm not here to to certainly uh, do a hatchet job on Beach Grit. Um, I think they do a good job with what they are, but uh, I don't write for them. No, I'm, I'm I'm not asking to do a hatchet job at all. But they're, they're, you know, it's the obvious. It's a looming influence on modern surf culture. So, you know, in, in, in terms of, of, of the point you make, I just thought it was an interesting comparison, really. So when you, when you look back over your, um, you know, when you were putting this together and you talked about the span of this, you talked about, you know, like how it reflected the zeitgeist at certain points and the trends, the social trends, because as, as with everything, surfing is a reflection of the society, the times of the society. Did anything surprise you? Did, any, did you look back and... and you know, did you, did anything take you, make you stand back and rethink uh, some, some of the trends or some of the work, anything take, you know, look at it with a fresh perspective at this remove? When I wrote this book in deep and when I looked back at it, I was surprised at the, the context of it all, how it was all put into context. Of course, there was great surprises like, you know, Kelly Slater's quote at 17 years old when I asked him, what are you going to do with all this money in the future? And he said, I don't know, um, maybe build a wave pool for me and my friends. And that was at 17 years old. And so he predicted that himself and he did it. And that, that is an extraordinary achievement, an absolutely extraordinary achievement. Um, but yes, looking back, I, I, believe, I believe this book puts today's surfing in context. It's not, you know, the way it was or, you know, you know, we're old silverbacks trying to stir up some old memories. You know, it's not that at all. I think that it's it's a very human book about what it what it means to be a surfer, what it feels like, and and one of the one of the most surprising things that I think I miss so much in today's surf journalism 
is how relatable it is. I mean, we have people coming to grips with their sexuality. We have people coming to grips with difficult parents. We have uh, people in rehab. We've got um, people who are, who are joyful and, and filled with glee. They've had a you know a good ride. We've got um, all the things that being a human is about. And here it is with our heroes. And you realize that they put their pants on one leg at a time too. And I think that's, I think that's really important to be able to relate to these people because quite frankly, you know, Matt, we, we deserve to know who these people are. Uh, like I, I, I believe they are who we are. We, we buy the products they produce. We want to look like them. We wear our hair like them. We want to dress like them. They're in our consciousness. We want to surf like them. We want to live like the, they live. And this is, uh, you know, that's pretty powerful stuff when you think about it. And, um, and so that was one of the big things uh, for me when I went back and, and put them all in one, you know, literary tome was just how, how these common human issues that we all have as surfers, where today everybody's Bethany Hamilton. You know, everybody gets up, they get in the ice bath, they have some Asahi, they're cheerful. Here's my beautiful wife on my birthday. And here's this, you know, and you're just like, are you all just happy, happy, happy birthday and happy, uh, you know, everybody's Bethany Hamilton, you know, and, and I love Bethany. As, as you know, her story kicks off my book. I, I find her an extraordinary female, but um, yes, that the context, when I went back and realized that, wow. You were you used to be able to know your heroes and relate to them in a way other than you know a beach grip quip or a WSL heat or a you know I mean it's pretty extraordinary when you think about an anodyne YouTube video or like a, a very a very kind of sanitized Instagram clip you know like it's all I, I, it's you know the rough edges have kind of been smoothed off haven't they really by the by these new mediums I guess. Yeah, and, and like I said about John John, you take this extraordinary individual, we don't know who he is, you know? I mean, apparently, like I said, it's rumored that he's married. It's rumored that he's a great navigator that can sail across the Pacific Ocean in his own boat. He's rumored to have an instrument-rated pilot license. You know, this is interesting stuff, you know? And he was the the son of a single mom struggling on the North Shore. And, you know, you, you can relate to this kind of stuff. And unfortunately... All we get are those appalling post-heat interviews on the WSL. That, that's all we get. And so I believe we deserve to know these people. And I would look forward to the day when that curiosity would be reignited. And I think this book reignites it. And you've always recognized surfing as the, as the perfect canvas to explore these themes by, this, by, you know, by looking at your work and by looking at how you talk about surfing from 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 the beginning right you always recognized it as this grand canvas did you did you want to did you consciously try and bring literary standards to surf writing to reflect that from from the beginning because it feels like you did because obviously you've got a lot of literary influences you know you, you you took it seriously by the sounds of it from the from the beginning i think people that that's what people deserve when you're involved in a passion surfing is just this global driving force of emotion and it should be explored and like i said i can leave the, the you know the humor and the and and the guffaws to other people that's fine and um you know i'm not a complete 
stone face. I mean, I've got some, I've got some pretty hilarious stories in this book, but um, it's, I, I took it very much as the adventure that it is. I mean, surfing to me was, is, is an adventure that you could only find if you were in the military or something, you know, you travel to these far off lands, you see these exotic people, you're with them, you hop in these exotic oceans, you participate in this, in this act that is an extraordinarily, an extraordinarily emotional act that is literally connected to the cosmos with the tides and the waves and the wind and the, it's an extraordinary act. And so I think that I approached it in the same way that say Joseph Conrad, uh, John Steinbeck, you know, Jack London, uh, you know, to me, these, these, that sort of writing where you, where you really get into it, you know, heart of darkness, Lord Jim, um, you know, even the John Steinbeck novels, cause I spend a lot of my time growing up in the Steinbeck country, you know, I just believed in a very immersive adventure and tinged with heroism. I think it takes a lot of courage for a young man to pick up a surfboard, put it under his arm and travel the world into the unknown. Personally, I think that's very courageous and, uh, and I write accordingly. Yeah. There's a romanticism. Like you say, there's a, there's a, there's a heroism. And yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask you about Steinbeck cause you're from Northern California, aren't you? And I, I kind of, I kind of guessed that perhaps he was a touch point comrade. You mentioned with David Lee, um, Hemingway as well. I, I, I wonder if maybe he's an influence on your work. Um, particularly the kind of, I was thinking about that, you know, the life as art thing as well, like given the breadth of experiences that you, that you've had, but given, so given that approach that you've just outlined, um, what did you take from those influences? If you, if you look at somebody like Conrad and, and Steinbeck, like what, what were you trying to take from them to put, to, to influence your own work? Experience. Um, coming from a place of experience, I call it experiential writing. That's what I teach in my classes is I teach experiential writing, get out there and experience it and write about it. And not just as, as an observer, but as a participant, Ernest Hemingway boxed, you know, Joseph Conrad was a great mariner. Um, you know, John Steinbeck was deeply involved in, in, you know, civil rights for, you know, uh, all the, uh, you know, all the, the field workers and, you know, he got into it and he went out there and, you know, John Steinbeck picked cabbage, you know, with the, with the Okies and, and he did these things and, it's so important that experience to, to come from that, to come from that point of view. Like, oh, I don't know, Mailer's great book on the Rumble in the Jungle, or any of uh, George Plimpton's works. You know, where, I mean, he he, you know, he played a couple plays for the Detroit Lions for crying out loud. You know, and and so it's this experiential writing where you're out there doing it, or you're at least right next to holding the hand of the person that you're writing about. I think that's really important. I mean, it was, it was kind of termed the new journalism, wasn't it? I guess you could put Thomas Wolfe in there. You could put Hunter S. Thompson in there. Um, sure. Broadly. Sure. Yeah. I did. I did wonder if, I mean, that's kind of what I recognize in your writing. And I, I, I guess the reason why I asked the question about, did you consciously do it? Because 
it was ripe for doing it, wasn't it? You know, like I, I, I think there's obviously always been a history of great surf writing, but um, as as we've as we've mentioned, it, there's a huge there's a huge historical arc to this, like using surfing as this metaphor for life experience that goes back into the mid nineteenth, well, the late nineteenth century certainly. Um, so I kind of I've always looked at your work in that lineage really as as somebody who's attempted to to carry on that kind of you know grand tradition really so it's it's interesting to hear that that was something you were conscious of cognizant of and 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 really tried to to convey oh very conscious and and i was very lucky very lucky to grow up in my life around readers you know the great dave parmenter and my brother sam george and myself and others i mean we we, you know, we'd exchange Steinbeck quotes, you know, out in the surf, you know, it's like, I know that sounds a little, a little, I don't know, a little, a little too erudite, but the bottom line is that we would, you know, we lived very much through these books and we were, we were readers and voracious readers. And so we, we picked that all up and I very much like when, when the publisher first contacted me, uh, my first thought was, I said, look, I don't want this to be a coffee table book. I don't, that's exactly the opposite of what I want it to be. I want it to be a literary book where surfing is examined in a literary manner. And even though, you know, my photos that I've shot over my photography career are in them, they're about the size of a credit card and they, they, they're at the top of every story and it's a little tiny illustration that is able to get you into the story in, in a psychic way. And it really works, you know, um, but it's not a coffee table book. You're not going to, it's not a recounting of history. It's not, I'm not, I'm not telling you what happened. I'm telling you what was. Yeah. What it was like when you were there rather than a recounting. So what, just moving it away from surfing, um, I'm, I'm as much of a geek about this stuff as, as you sure. are, as you, as you might've gathered. Um, what, what writers now do you see also following this tradition? Like who are you reading now that you, that you think are worthy successors to the, to the people we've spoken about? Well, of course I can't get enough of Cormac McCarthy. He recently passed, unfortunately. And there's a great, a great influence on me as a author named Pete Dexter he did things like Paris Trout and Brotherly Love and God's Pocket and things like that. He's been a, an enormous, I'd say him and John Steinbeck were probably the biggest influences on me. But as for contemporary writers now, I, I'm so open to suggestions. I buy a lot of books. Um, I'm constantly looking for, for new, new writers of today, contemporary writers that are really getting into it. Um, uh, Leonard, um, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly looking for new writers and, um, I'd, I'd love to find them and, and, and I would love, I'd love to have suggestions and all that. But right now I'm in a period where, um, reading a lot of Elmore Leonard nice. and of course, Cormac McCarthy who's passed away, uh, Pete Dexter, who isn't writing anymore. Um, but I will say, I find a lot of great writing in Esquire magazine. That's a big source for me. Um, I, I, I think you, um, I think you, you might've heard that I grew up also reading Rolling Stone magazine when it was, when it was, um, important. Yeah. Like John, John Wiener era. Oh yeah. There was just great, great backstage involved, 
you know, are you experienced type writing about rock and roll? And I just found that really thrilling stuff. And I related it to surfing because being on stage in front of all those people and, and being, having to be so emotional and, and having to really spill your guts, I, I think that's really relatable to surfing. And it was great to read uh, those, those great rock and roll writers that were, they were there, man. And so that really influenced me to not, to not write about anything unless I was there on the scene. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm some of my favorite Hunter S. Thompson stuff, obviously f- probably the most famous Rolling Stone writer of that period is his collective journalism. You know, the Kentucky Derby stuff that um, there's an amazing profile of a skier, Jean-Claude Killy that he wrote, which is, I think that might like similarly Bruce Chatwin, another person I'm sure you're aware of my favorite work. My favorite, book of his is his collected Sunday times journalism, you know, like obviously he's got his great novels and sure. Um, so yeah, well on, on the modern writers, Patrick Radden Keefe, I'll send you a link. Um, New Yorker writer wrote an amazing book called empire of pain about the, uh, opoid scandal. Oh, fantastic. For me, the best nonfiction writer around right now. Um, so I'll send you I'll send you a link. Um but but getting it slightly back on track and apologies listeners for my me doing my usual uh diversions. Um so I mentioned the life as art concept, you know, and I think I think if you look at somebody like Hemingway, clearly I don't know if you've seen the brilliant Ken Burns documentary about Hemingway that's out at the minute, um, celebrates him for his life as much as his work, you know, the the incredibly interesting adventurous life that he that he lived and looking at your um incredible experience packed life i mean you've mentioned a few things you know we talked about the surfing you've mentioned the hollywood interlude um there's there's more there's a lot more um i'm wondering if when you were young you i'm <laughs> yeah. wondering if when you were young you consciously thought to yourself do you know what i'm gonna throw myself at this i'm gonna try and get as many experiences as i can i'm gonna I'm going to say yes to as much as I can because it kind of, I kind of don't see how you could have lived the life that you have if you didn't have that approach really. Was that how it was? Yes. And from a very early age, and I'll tell you, it comes with great sacrifice, you know, but um, aside from the sacrifice, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very content with, with what I did in my approach to life, which was adventure at all cost. And I felt that my skills and, and my, uh, my fitness and, and my presence of mind was built for this. And had I not done it, I, I would, it would have been a crime. It would have been a crime to myself. I think it would have been a crime to my family. I think, you know, I think it would have been a crime to nature. And I know that sounds really pompous, but I, I just felt a calling and this is, this is what I had to do. Now, obviously it, there's some sacrifices, you know, I've, I've never been able to have a family, never been able to stop and have a family. I'm not a, I'm not a wealthy man. Um, you know, there's sacrifices you make. Um, I don't own a home, um, you know, but, but the adventures in the end, you know, you can't take it with you, but boy, you can take those adventures with you, especially if you write them down and present them to the world, then you feel like they're cave paintings and these are your cave paintings. You know, that's what in deep is. They're my cave paintings, you know, and Believe me, there'll be more before I'm done. But this one is 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 like the last cow caves. You know, it's like the, these will never go away. Now that they cannot be swiped right or left or 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 anything, you can't even comment on them. You know, you need to get that book in your hand and absorb it. And um, 
I, I'm just very proud of the way I've lived and all my different interludes, as you put it, and um, all my different incan- incarnations. It, it, it was a definite um, conscious effort on my part from a very young age, having been born to, to you know, a, a, a father in the Navy and my mother was a teacher and we traveled the world at a very young age and there was no way I was going to stop. When you look back, uh, I mean, am I right in thinking you're mid-60s now? 65-ish? Um, so I'm 64 years old. 64, the, the Paul McCartney age. Um, Proud of it. Proud of it. When you look back, what do you think of as the most challenging period of your life? Anytime I was broke. You know, that's, that's obviously, you know, the most challenging thing, but that's boring. Every, any adventure is going to be, you know, poor of pocket many times in their life. So that's, that's not, that, that wasn't the challenge. I think the biggest challenging uh, period in my life was uh, my Hollywood experience. Um, I, I had to work with people who seem hell bent on the destruction of every soul on earth. And it just, um, that, that was very challenging. I, I walked away from that movie with two ulcers in my stomach. Um, the movie in God's hands that I made with, uh, with uh, Columbia TriStar features. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote this script, it was destroyed. I did, a, I did my best. And then I had to cop it from the surfing world. You know, I had to take it like it was all my fault. And I did, I did take it. I proudly, I wore it on my shoulders. And now now all I'm getting is comments from people just going, oh, I love that movie and I'd love to go back and watch it again. And gee, it's so neat. And the whole thing, I, I could have used that at the time, you know, thanks guys. You know? But we did our best. And I'll tell you that that movie was as good as we could possibly make it. And it still has the most extraordinary surfing of any surf movie ever made. So I'm very proud of that because we did all the surfing ourselves. Um, what, what was it like the ultimate kind of, commerce v creativity conundrum them like you just were working with people that just had no interest in 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 representing it in in culture the right way like they they didn't listen like what could you dig into that a little bit like what because i'm so fascinated by this it's such a common story isn't it especially when somebody like yourself who comes from a place of you know ultimate knowledge basically writes writes something true it gets to hollywood and then gets completely boulderized and and destroyed. It's so common that that's that tale. In your case, what what was it? Did they just they just were interested in listening? Well, I was on the creative side of things. Um, I wasn't really on the business side of things, but the business side drives the creative, of course, in Hollywood. And basically, um, there were some really good people that I was involved in, but the the leaders of of, of the project. Um, were just not tuned into what I was trying to say with this screenplay. I modeled this screenplay uh, after the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, of this great voyage uh, with you know a, a hero and a, a two acolytes who you know travel around the world in pursuit of the Golden Fleece. You know th- this whole thing, and and so that that's what that movie was all about, and it, it, it got it got turned into something very confusing. And a lot of that has to do with uh, whoever's directing it and, and what sort of footprint they want to put on it. And that's the thing. I think any writer who writes something and then you have to invite 17 people to come in and put their thumbprint on it, 
it, it's very frustrating. Um, I'm not saying everybody in Hollywood's terrible. There's some dynamite movies out there, and I'm a big movie fan because I'm a I'm a fan of good stories. And um, but my, my experience was that it was a hell of a lot of fun running around the world, you know, making a movie with my best friends. But the end product was uh, very devastating to me and actually caused me to walk away from a career. Wow. So that's significant. So that, that emotionally impactful. Yeah, I couldn't take it. You know, I just couldn't take the... Look, it's not like every screenwriter in the world writes the perfect script and it gets made exactly like that. I understand that. But it was just, it was just the devastating disappointments and um, I, I just didn't see a future in it and basically I was around a lot of people I wouldn't invite home to dinner and I just that's not my life that's not my life you know my life has always been filled with close dear friends and great adventures and real sincerity and I, I just didn't see myself you know as a, as a Hollywood person I just didn't fit so it seems like you've had a really clear idea of those values as well from the beginning like you know what what matters to you you know you've mentioned experience friendship above money and tr and traditional you know indicators of success really um oh, which yes. i think is it is 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 really admirable you know because obviously it's it's increasingly hard to fight against that tide isn't it well and certainly uh love and great romances and you know, I, I'm, I'm so lucky to, to, I believe to have lived this life of, of these lofty experiences and these emotional highs and lows and the great romances, whether it was with a country or a woman, you know, uh, you know, these, these lofty thoughts and actions and, you know, sure. You could say that I'm a, a dramatist. I take, I wear that mantle proudly. And you could even say I'm a mythologist as well. And I, I wear that, you know, I wear that very proudly. And that's why even in this book, you'll find that there's writing in first, second, and third person. Um, it, it's a real melange of different kinds of aspects looking into surfing um, and, and having, well, quite frankly, having the audacity to, to write something like Old Smoke, where I get inside a surfer's head who smokes too much weed and and uh, it looks back in his life and he's very disappointed at what he's done and he's about to blow his brains out, you know, like, so I've met these people and I've talked to these and I've looked them in the eyes and, and I've been very proud to be able to step back and write through their eyes as uh, in third person. And you'll find some of these stories in the book. I think they'll surprise you, you know? Um, and, and if I sound like I'm very, very, proud of myself well you know i am i'm proud of myself i and i'm proud of this book and and i'm very happy to talk about it in glowing terms you know so shoot me <laughs> <laughs> not at all not at all um i i actually had a chat with a friend of mine ben mundy before we um before we oh ben i love ben he's fantastic. yeah so i said to ben you know matt don't you and he said ask him about working with us at, at tracks in the 90s so um i i wondered if you if you could because knowing Ben, there's a few stories there, and uh, you know it's another another example of you being in, in these different moments in time, isn't it? You know, like being in Sydney at that point, being in, on the east coast at that point around Australia. So I wondered, I wondered if anything stood out when you think back to that period. Oh, man, oh man, does it ever tracks? Oh, I am a 
dyed in the wool fan. I, I still consider myself the associate editor. You know, it's like that was some of the greatest, greatest fun and greatest times. Um, and for obvious reasons, um, Australia, you know, having started surfing in 1967 and then discovering coming along right with the shortboard, with the shortboard revolution. And it was led by the Australians. Australia, Australia always held this mystique and, and, and this um, emotion and this, this world. It always held that in my mind. When I finally grew old enough to be a professional surfer and get there, it, it was everything I thought it was going to be and more. I really thought I was going to retire in Australia someday. I, I can explain why I retired in Bali another time, but I really thought Australia was going to be my life. And so when I, in the 90s, when I was there, 90s and early 2000s, when I was at, at Trax Magazine with Ben Mundy and, you know, Derek Riley and Sam McIntosh and, you know, Neil Ridgway, I could go on with all these names, these classic, classic characters. I mean, first of all, the old office was right next to the red light district in Darlinghurst there. So, you know, you'd go have lunch at the strip joint, you know, and then you'd come back and, and the place had no air conditioning and it would get so hot in the summer that uh, Tony Nolan, uh, the, the photography editor would actually develop all the film. Cause back then he had to develop the film himself that came in and he'd actually develop in the developing room nude. So he was our nude artist. He was our nude, you know, photography guy and all just the crazy people that walked through that office and, and when it was, it was right in the pocket of a very exciting time in surfing. And there was just outrageous story after outrageous party after outrageous people. And, um, I, I, I just really remember that as so fondly, for example, I I'd go to work on the ferry, you know, you, you'd, you'd run down to the ferry, you'd hop on the ferry, you'd go over to the, uh, the Sydney opera house, you'd, hop on the bus and you'd go to the really grotty part of the city and you'd go up there and there'd be the boys and beers would already be opened at one o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, you were looking at photos that were coming in. Oh, that's a neat story. And what about this and that? And they'd give you an envelope of cash and say, go, go cover Bell's beach, you know, or, or they'd give you a ticket and go, you're going to the Mentawai, you know, you could just make it to the airport. Oh my God. You know? And so it was just this, it was just this beautiful chaos. And, um, and I think there was some really beautiful writing in it. You have to remember that I've been writing for tracks since it was a newspaper, uh, when it was, you know, actually on newsprint and in black and white. And um, and I miss those days too. How 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 that had such a vital feeling. You know, we were putting out a surfing newspaper. You know, and I just I just thought that was great. So I would say uh, that Ben Monday. And my and, and anyone that walked through that office has just got these extraordinary stories. And some of them are actually in the book. So, you know, you can find them there. It's really wild stuff. Oh, I love Sydney. I think it's just one of the great cities of the world, isn't it? Like you say, the just even getting around. I love it. I love the place. I, I just love the place. And uh, for obvious reasons, coming from, you know, having spent formative years in San Francisco and the Bay Area, uh, there are obvious reasons. I mean, here I go there and just like San Francisco, there's this beautiful city on the bay and there's boats and there's a sailing culture and a surfing culture. And of course, I could relate to that, you know, and uh, and it was it, it, to me, Australia was as, as exotic as any land I'd ever been in. And I just I to this day, I love the culture. I just love it. 
I think the most the most the the, the most valuable the most valuable thing in Australia to me that I learned was the Australian character, you know, uh, the world of pubdom and the world of the fair go and the, the, the world of sports and the world of having a dig and respecting people that do. And, and just, just that, just that respect that, that, that people have for fairness. And, uh, I, I really, Truly, uh, am a great fan of Australia. So, why Bali? Apart from the obvious reasons. Well, they're not so obvious, actually, Matt. Um, I first came here in 1984, and sure, that really put the zap on me. I remember going home and opening my suitcase, and I could smell Bali. You know, back in California, I just went, and it was like a physical, a physical pull. And so, all my life, I mean. Bali, obviously, being one of the great international crossroads of the surfing world, if not the premier, you know, Indonesia being the premier international crossroads of the entire surfing world. Uh, aside from that, my life weaved in and out of this place. It weaved in and out. And it was, I've, I always miss the freedom of the place because here in Bali, you have absolutely no rights at all as a, as a immigrant, which is what I am. I'm not an expat. I'm, I'm committed. I'm an immigrant and it's, you're on your own here. And that's the freedom. You have no rights. You only have privileges and what a great way to live. And then you're around this, this spiritual religion that is pervasive here. And the whole religion is based on thanks, you know, so, you know, being thankful to be alive, thankful for nature, thankful for what you believe in. And I'm like, gee, that's great. You know, if only we could talk the Vatican into that, you know, there'd be no problems in the world. And so it's like, you know, so that was a big deal. Now, what happened was after I did all my aid work um, in uh, after the great tsunami and I was back in um, uh, Padang, West Sumatra, um, having just done uh, a lot of aid work for one of their devastating earthquakes. And I got invited, crew on this, uh, on this racing catamaran from Langkawi to New Zealand. And we sailed, we sailed south through the Indian Ocean. And I have to tell you, the moment that I saw Bali on the horizon, I felt that, that pull, that really heavy pull. And as we pulled into Sarong and Harbor, and I walked down the gangplank, I knew I was never getting back on that boat. And this was in 2009. And I turned around literally on the dock and I called the captain over to the railing. And I said, you know, captain, uh, I, I, I'm going to live here for the rest of my life and I'm not getting back on the boat. And he looked at me and laughed and just said, you know, Matt, I believe you, you know? And so sure enough, you know, that's, that's what I did. I, um, I stayed here and, and, and made a life here and, and, uh, and have fallen into a very, charming and wonderful retirement yeah that sounds great i'm uh, I'm, I'm quite jealous of uh... <laughs> well, but but i got into it's not for everybody it is not for everybody i mean you know i i was lucky enough to create um to take over surf time magazine and, and build it into what it is today I, i've been able to keep writing i've been able to be a vital part of a great surfing community i married a beautiful indonesian woman um you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, 
I'm an immigrant. You know, I don't, people say, oh, what's it like being an expat? I'm, I'm not an expat, man. I got a job here. I'm part of a community. I'm married to a, a, a beautiful Indonesian woman. I'm an immigrant, man. And that stimulates new stories over and over and over because I still travel a lot. But Bali, Bali really keeps your adventurous spirit alive because it's right outside your door 24 hours a day. And, and uh, I, I'm still riding and I'm still surfing and I'm st- I just climbed a volcano three days ago. And, you know, it's like, yes, fantastic. And you're free to do all that stuff here. You know, nobody tries to stop you from doing anything if you just have a little bit of respect. And I love the place for that. You're on your own. One of the things I was um, really interested in your conversation with David Lee was um, you talked about the sense of place in surfing. You talked about geography. You talked about how um, important that was as as part of the surf experience, which I thought was really, really interesting because quite often it can be quite a transactional relationship with nature if you're a surfer like you know this wave exists so that i can surf it this this place exists so that i can come along and and i really liked the way that you obviously like to place yourself in in nature you know like the recognition that you're actually part of 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 this thing that it doesn't exist just to serve you so i wondered where that i, I still think that's quite rare i still think you don't really hear people talk about surfing in those t- terms as much as you should so i wondered I'm kind of guessing that came a little bit from your, from where you learned to surf and your North Californian upbringing, perhaps. Yes, it was. It's 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 very important. I, of course, um, my brother and I, Sam and I, learned how to surf in Waikiki, and so you're out at Waikiki. You're looking in at Honolulu. You're looking in at, those, at the at the poly, you know, at the beautiful mountains and you know uh, Diamond Head and. You're looking in at all that. And that was my first impression was that the land was part of your surfing. Even when you're out in the surf, as you turn around and look towards shore, that's part of it because the land doesn't disappear at water's edge. It, it just goes underwater. And so you're literally surfing over the, the geography that you're looking at. And I think that that connection, that natural connection was really important. I think it's one of the reasons people love the North Shore so much. And I think it's why they love Naralu and and I think it's why they love these, you know, these incredibly natural places like those guys that are riding those giant waves in Ireland and just these remarkable places. And, and to be able to look in and see that land that you're surfing over, that land and those rivers that make the river mouths and carve the reefs. And you, get, you, you grow up surfing in Hawaii and Northern California and Central California, looking in at that topography and you are connected to that experience, that land experience. It's part of it. And again, it's that, that cosmic connection that you are literally floating between, between heaven and earth. Here you are out in the water and the earth is below your feet and heaven is above your, above your, your, your eyes. And th- these pulses, these waves, that, these waves come to you from from some miraculous place, you know, and, and you're right in the middle of it. You're floating literally above, above earth and below heaven. And these waves come and, you know, it's extraordinary that, you know, 
we're surrounded by all these waves. You know, we're surrounded by microwaves and light waves and sound waves and all these waves. But the ocean wave is the only wave that can be seen with the human eye. And we choose to ride these things. The water is not moving. It's a pulse of energy through a medium called water. And we're actually able to get up to speed with our little hands and our little surfboards. And we're able to jump on that pulse and get to our feet and ride this thing. No wonder surfing is such an addiction. No wonder it's, it, it consumes lives for good or bad. No wonder, you know, we have, um, you know, uh, drug overdoses and suicides in surfing. No wonder we have all these because it's like being on stage. It's like being a rock star. And how do you, how do you feed that high all the time, all the time? If you don't have the intellect to handle that lightning bolt that goes through your heart, I can see why on land you'd snort Coke or pop pills or shoot heroin. You got to get back, man. You got to get home, you know, and, you know, perfect example is Andy Irons, you know, um, or, or some of our other great surfers that have taken their own lives with drugs. You know, it's sad and it's horrible, but I can understand it. You know, if you don't have what it, if you don't have what it takes to wait for your moments in the ocean to get that high and to be connected to all that, well then, yeah, I can see you seeking it on land in all the wrong places. Um, now you have, other surfers that seek it in all the right places, you know, like Kai Lenny, who's the most, I think he's the greatest surfer in the world right now, although I am an enormous Kelly Slater fan. But, um, you know, with everything he's doing, all the equipment he uses, all the different ways to get his high, you know, spectacular, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, so that connection, even now, when I paddle out at Uluwatu or Padang Padang and I look in and there's beautiful limestone cliffs with ancient temples perched on them and those great valleys with the rivers, with the creeks coming down, carving those perfect reefs. I feel like that land is as much a part of my surfing as those waves that break over it. I'm going to also recommend uh, Robert McFarlane to you, a British nature writer who I think you would very, very much enjoy. I can't wait. Um, He's, he just wrote a really great book called Underland, um, which I think would be right up your uh, boulevard, let's say. Um, so uh, uh, on that topic, an, a, an obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So you're obviously extremely well-traveled, surfed all over the world, but given, I, I'm not going to say like what wave do you wish you'd surfed because that's too obvious, but what I'm going to ask is like what environment do you wish you'd have the chance to surf in? Well, this is going to sound, look, I'm 64 years old. I've been everywhere. So it's going to sound, it's going to sound really pompous. I haven't missed a thing. I've done it all. I've been in six millimeter wetsuits. I've been North, South, East, and West. But I will say that my favorite surfing environment is the desert. I really, really relate to the Western Australian guys because we had Baja. Baja was a wild desert experience with those big offshore winds and just these cobalt blue waves, just, you know, with the top of the wave torn off them by these, by these great offshore winds, these desert winds, you know, and, and just the two brides that we would get, they were just wild and woolly and, you know, you're in a wetsuit and just that excitement of all that, you know, um, I, I would say that the desert experience was my favorite, but did I miss anything? I, I, I don't think I have. I've surfed 
from the equator to the to the upper climbs and the lower climbs. But I will say I do have a, a deep, deep belonging and love for the surf coast of Victoria. Um, I, I find that zone also um, very, very uh, admirable. You know, like Winky Pop is one of my all-time favorite waves in the world, you know. And, and, and there's another place where you look in and you can see the land and the rolling hills of Johanna. And, the, you know, and you're just like, wow, man, this sport is great. <laughs> um, you, you're also somebody that uses uh, walking as an aid to creativity by the sounds of it. Um, when you need to marshal a story, get your thoughts together. Um, is it the rhythm of it that helps? You know, it, it's, it's, I, it's funny. Okay. The other day I was reading um, a, a blog of, of a, a woman. I, I just love her blog. She's just, she's very intellectual and she finds all these great things. And there was this story about how Beethoven would write his symphonies as he walked, he had to walk. And you find this story on and on. You even, it, it, Socrates walked, and I'm not trying to compare myself to these titans of, of art and culture. I'm just saying that that walking thing came to me very, very naturally. And I, I often bump into people. I, I, I've even bumped into a tree before. I've tripped and fallen. I, you know, you just get into this zone, and there's something about, Matt, there's something about that blood that is coming up through your brain as you're walking. And, and whether it's a, whether I'm going fast or then I slow down or I'll get a great thought and I'll stop and, you know, someone will bump into me from behind or something, you know, and it, it, it just, it, the story comes to me. And I've always, I've always written my stories with a great first line in mind and a great last line. I know this is, sounds a little odd, but the first line and the last line always come to me. And I almost fill everything else in between those two things. I really believe in that first line, which is why I've never started a story with the word I, you know, um, I, I, I just, I've never done that. I've always, I've always tried to have a, a good first sentence that gets me and the reader in, into the shared experience of the story, you know you know, the last camel died at noon, you know, or something like that, you know, where you're like, whoa, I want, wow, I want to know what happens next. And so a lot of my stories are bookended by, by those sentences. And so the walking gives me those sentences and, uh, and, and, and I just sort of fill it all in, in between those. They come to me out of the ether. It's, it's, I can depend on it. And, and I don't talk about it very often because it sounds so odd, but it, they, they come to me out of the ether. It, it, it's extraordinary. And I'm, I'm so happy that I discovered meditative walking. Yeah. I mean, like you say, it's a, it's a really well, well known aid to creativity for me. I think it's the rhythm of it because I feel, cause I, I've, I've got a dog. So I walk my dog like two hours a day, basically. And it, yeah, it's exactly as you describe. If I've got a, if I've got a, a, a creative problem, a story that I'm trying to write or a phrase, you know, that, that, that as you, the word you use, meditative, rhythmic, um, kind of just lends itself so naturally, doesn't it? To, to sort of unlocking those, those thoughts that you need to, to sort of feed the, whatever project you're working on really. Yeah. And the story starts breathing. It starts breathing with you. And, and I, I, I drive my wife crazy because I talk to myself a lot. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know how people sing in the shower, 
Um, I talk to myself, you know, and it's like my wife is constantly, you know, coming around the corner. I'm sorry, honey. And I'm like, no, no, just talking to myself. And I just drive her crazy. I, I do talk to myself a lot. I, I think a lot of writers do personally, but I'll, I'll admit that I, I do talk to myself a lot. Are you, are you a big note taker? I have, I could show you, oh, we're not on video. I have about eight different notepads sitting in front of me right now. I have, I'm a big fan of pens. I have a bunch of pens. They got to be just right. And um, I, I take notes physically and I write a lot of my stories on um, fool's cap, you know, on, on yellow, uh, yellow legal pads. I get it down there and then I improve it when I input it into a computer. I, I really believe in the tactile nature of putting ink to paper. There's something there and these notes that only you can understand and only you can read. And it, 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 it comes down so quickly and it's not electronic. It's, it's tactile. And I, I think that it, I, I try to teach it in my classes to get these young people to actually grab a pen and a notepad and just scribble down the notes of your story in this skeleton. And then you, you put the flesh on when you sit at the computer. So yes, I'm a prodigious note taker. I believe that the more notes you take, uh, the better your story is going to be. Yeah. I mean, it's just, tra- it's almost like training yourself to pay attention as well, isn't it? Like just, just the act of, of, <laughs> That's of, a great um, way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> but it kind of is though, isn't it? Cause I'm a big believer that creativity is just a habit like and and all the things that we're sort of talking about here that and the way that you describe it as well it's it, it, yes that yes you need to work hard yes there can be moments of revelatory experience that can that can inform it but it's a habit like you just have to do it um i was fortunate enough to interview the great thomas campbell last week and he just kept saying you've just got to sit in the chair that's all you've got to do you know sit in the chair enough and you, you will you will eventually develop a style and you will eventually develop work that you'll be proud of and it's very very simple advice isn't it but it's 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 very true so when i hear about your habits of walking and note taking and you know observing just looking at the world and trying to and trying to observe the, these are just the habits that inform creativity and ultimately like your craft as a writer aren't they which is which is i think a salutary lesson for people you know because there's a lot of mis- there's a lot of mystique, isn't there? There's a lot of there's a lot of like, um, you know, s- the barriers for creativity. Like painting it is this hugely challenging thing, and it is challenging, obviously. But ultimately, like I say, I strongly believe it's a habit, and you just have to, as Thomas put it, sit in the chair. Well, you know, I also I, I love that because I, I I you and I both know what it's like to sit in the chair and it's especially when you look at the body of work in this book you know it's it's 545 pages of of these experiences and um and and of very vital people that were important but it's interesting one of my techniques I call it free range note taking um, I'm not I'm not the little cub reporter sitting at the feet of of my friend Kelly Slater and you know, I'm not sitting at his feet with a little notepad. Hey, tell us more, Kelly. It's not that at all. I just wander around and live with these people, and I start writing down. I always have a a small pen, a small pen or pencil, on me, and if I don't, I'll borrow it from the waitress or whatever. And when I get a chance, I'll write it down on a napkin, a scrap of paper. I've got one here. I don't smoke, of course, but I, I had to tear up a uh, 
I had to tear up a cigarette pack and write on the inside. It's the only paper I could find, you know. Um, I call it free-range note-taking so that your your subject, if you're doing a profile on a human being, is very, in, is very um, candid and casual because you're not sitting there pen in hand writing down every time they say something clever. You have to have a fantastic memory and you have to have a ear for dialogue. And, you know, I, I'll even... I know it sounds a little dishonest, but I'll even say I have to go to the bathroom for a second if something's really remarkable and I'll go in there and I'll scratch down a note real quick and just stuff it in my pocket. And then at the end of the day, when I'm going to do the story, I actually take all these little bits and pieces that I have on, on little scraps of paper and candy wrappers and all these things. And I'll lay them out on the floor of, 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 of my office and I'll stand there and start considering them like a puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle. And, and I call it free range note taking. And I must say my wife finds it very odd. <laughs> no, I get that. I get that. Cause, cause I mean, I, I, I do it, I do it on, on like, you know, writing on a computer, basically if I've got a particularly like I'm trying to write, I'm writing a script at, at the minute and what I'm doing is I'm just recognizing when I've just got an idea for a certain part of it and like concentrating on that. And then at some point it becomes an exercise like you say of piecing it all together doesn't it and that and and that is that's also part of the part of the, the deal you know so i completely recognize that and i also recognize the 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 value in 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 doing it physically as well you know because it, it changes the way that you that you think about what you what you're doing you know if, if you write if you literally type it and write and they just have different outcomes i believe and you know like it so again as a, as a as a means of unlocking the story that you try to tell I, I i totally recognize that yeah i'm going to try it, in fact i'm going to get the notebook out well i i really wish you the best of luck with your script i know what it's like and scripts are uh they're tough because they're so public and so many people are going to see them and and the uh you know and 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 the the fear of notes you know when the person you're presenting it to going yeah you know pretty good but i got some notes and you just go oh my god Oh my God, you know, and so I really wish you the best of luck with your script and, and, and I, I want to encourage you to, to finish it and, and get it on. Thank you. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll send it to you when it's done. Love to get your thoughts. Um, all right. Well, I've got a couple more questions if that's all right. And thanks so much for taking the time today. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation. So, um, what's the great loss story? What's the story that you never told? John, John Florence. Um, I can't get anywhere near him. He's, he's, he lives on a castle in the hill and you can't get anywhere near him. And I'm good friends with John Pizel. And yes, he's, he's much younger than me. And, you know, through my professional surfing career and writing career, we didn't spend a lot, a lot of time together like Kelly and I did. Um, at, but I, I would just love to do that story. It's like the one that got away and I'm not done yet. You know, I, I was just talking to John Pizel, what, two days ago, just going, you know, you know, I was explaining to him my five-day rule. And my five-day rule in writing when the Surfer Magazine would, would give me an assignment like, uh, you know, uh, go do a story on Shane Horan or Mark Ocalupo or, you know, anybody. I would say, okay, but I'm not doing it unless I can live with them for five days. I will sleep on the floor of their bedroom. I'll stay on the couch. I will know their mother's name. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go pick up the kids. I'll, I need to live with them in order to make this happen. I cannot and will not meet them in a cafe 
and turn on my recorder and spend an hour with them and then go write something. Um, I, I can't do that. I, I need to really know who this person is and, and how I relate to them. And so I would really like to take my five-day rule and just go to the North Shore, you know, because I know the North Shore very well, and just knock on John John's door and say, hey, I'm here. Uh, I've been given this assignment. I'm sure your managers have said it's okay. And, uh, you know, I brought my sleeping bag. So how do you how do you find podcasts then? Because obviously what I do here is the opposite to that. Like I I've got an hour to to try and capture somebody with I mean I, I try and do them in person where possible obviously, but you know in our case you're in Bali, I'm in I'm in France. Um and obviously you've done a lot of these. Um how do you find that because it's it's a completely different approach to what you're talking about and to me as as a as the host of one of these and a journalist of of thirty years experience, like I kind of recognize it as as a I like the challenge really. You know, I like I like the I like the challenge of of having to try and you know. Obviously, we'd all love the five day rule. I'd love to have flown to Bali and hung out with you for five days and <laughs> recorded. Be, this. Hey, you're you're welcome anytime, man. I got an extra bedroom. You know, you're welcome. I appreciate that. And maybe if I want to make it over there, we should do another one. But, um, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, this is a very different dynamic. So how, how'd you find it? How'd you find that? Well, first of all, um, I look at, I am a huge fan of podcasts. I listen to them all the time. I'm on them from time to time, but I look at them as photographs. These are, you, you put time in a bottle. You know, as a host of a podcast, I feel that you you literally put time and lightning in a bottle right away. No, it's not some big tome. It's not some big sonnet. It's not some, you know, Shakespearean play. No, it's a beautiful photograph of that time. And it captures not only the zeitgeist of that era because of the language we're speaking and the way we speak about it, but also that individual that you're talking to. It's a beautiful one-hour photograph, and I really, really enjoy them. That's a great way of looking at it because I think you've kind of you've kind of crystallized something that I instinctively got when I started doing this. Because basically, when I started doing this, just like six years ago, I was like initially probably felt quite a naive pressure to sort of capture the the portrait, and that's probably just because of like, again, you know, my background like yours is, is magazine journalism, so I can. And, you know, I'm a bit younger than you, but it certainly came up through the nineties and two thousands that the, at the tail end of the time, when you did have a bit more time, there was more money around, you could treat it. I mean, I certainly had the same ambitions for my writing that you had. Like I, I, I equally consciously wanted to bring in my influences. In my case, it was snowboarding. Um, so I'd completely recognize that, but, right. but like, but like in, in, when I started doing the podcast, about six months in, I was like, actually, that's not what this is. And you've, and you've, you've put it really, really elegantly, I think, you know, cause I was just like, the, the job here isn't to try and emulate Hunter S. Thompson. The job here is to just get an honest snapshot of, of a conversation and let that tell the story. And as soon as I kind of realized that I, it was, it was a very liberating moment because I was a bit like, yeah, this is, I could, yeah, this is great. This is just a new, a new way of doing it. Um, yeah, I like that. Photograph. I'm very glad you feel that way because podcasts, I think, are really vital. And it really adds to any story um, uh, because 
you know, you have you, now it's audio and visual and that's, that's all, it's almost, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And to, to be able to capture that portrait, you know, in an hour's time, it's enough, you know, and uh, it's enough for now. And so, so I'm a big, uh, big fan. Well, it's a good example of modern tech working in favor of storytelling, isn't it? You know, like working in, in harmony with it. Actually, on that point then, let's, let me get your take on AI. You mentioned it at the beginning, and it's obviously very um, on topic right now. Um, I'm not sure I completely share your skepticism, um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I just I got the impression that you, you know, you're not a fan, let's say. Um, so yeah, t- tell me, tell me a view on it. Cause everyone's got one at the minute. What, what, what do you, what do you think of it? Well, I'm, ter- I'm, I'm terrified of it because of the erosion of curiosity that I see in my students. Their curiosity has been eroded. Looking into something is, is so important to the intellect. And it's so important to create images and to find things in your own mind in your own way. But there's nothing more magical than being curious about something and looking into it. The same way someone learns how to play a guitar, someone learns a language, somebody learn, you know, that learning experience of, of, of looking into something and not just expecting to be there, but that you must uncover it and interpret what you're uncovering as it fits into your own personality and your own heart, AI reminds me of MTV. Um, MTV was uh, remarkable in this manner. Before there would be a romantic song uh, on the radio, say about a girl named you know Roberta, and everybody had a different image of what Roberta looked like, you know. But as soon as the videos came along, every time there would be a song everyone in the room would see the same video with the same person jumping around, you know, like Madonna or whatever, with these great romantic and fantastic pop songs that I believe should have had the opportunity to create images in in, in millions of people's minds are now one thing. And so I, one image. And so I like an AI to that, in that this writing that you can just order you know, is going to be the same for everybody. And so everybody's going to see the same video when the same song comes on. So I think it's a great evil. Um, and I, I, I'm seeing it on a very uh, one-on-one basis with students. I think that it's a, an evil thing. And I think it's not being controlled properly. Uh, I think there's a, some sort of money gold rush. I don't know how they monetize it, but whatever it is. It's money driven, which is always a bad idea. And um, it's being um, presented to the world in a very irresponsible manner. And the, the people who are suffering, suffering from this, young people, for their lack of curiosity, their lack of imagination, their lack of wanting to get into something, getting into something, you know. And so that's what I find is the evil of AI. Now, I have heard that as soon as AI starts feeding off each other, it's just going to get dumber and dumber and people are going to come back to, you know, more curiosity and, and, and real life. I don't know if I can see that happening, but my final take on AI is that I think it needs to be controlled 
And I believe that it is eroding the very brain cells of our young people. Interesting. Um, okay, let's, let's, I'm going to wrap it up. One more question then. Um, doesn't have to be in the water, but who are the two great influences of your surfing life? You know, you'd expect me to say Tom Curran and uh, Kelly Slater. You'd expect that. But that's why fact, I said that's, that's why I, that's why I said it doesn't have to be in the water. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I would, I would, I would have to mention, and it sounds well. I'll just be honest with you. My brother Sam, my older brother Sam, um, when our family had this devastating breakup when I was eight years old, uh, my brother Sam and I clung on to surfing um, as as just as hard as we could. And without, without him and without his guidance and without being able to follow him into the water and without his protection um, and without him eventually become, you know, leading me into professional surfing as he was. And then he became the editor of Surfer Magazine. Then I became the senior contributing editor. You know, I followed Sam's footsteps and it was a, a very powerful influence. He's a, um, uh, he's, he's, he's a, He's got, he's a big mind. He's got an encyclopedic uh, knowledge of surfing. He's an extraordinary athlete. And so I would say it was my brother, Sam, that really deeply influenced my surfing. And then the other person is a little more difficult to um, identify. But may I say that it was the great writers that I was reading. The great writers of the great novels that I was reading, that they really influenced how I approached surfing and even my style of surfing. I, I was recognized as a graceful surfer, and um, I'm very proud of that to this day. And um, I think it was the grace in their writing and, and just the way that they, they were able to really pinpoint emotions and explore them because I believe that those writers created a very emotional surfer in Matt George. Brilliant. And yeah. Okay. So, um, your book, where can people get it? And, um, yeah. What, what's, is, is it online? Is it on Amazon? Is it on bookshops? Like what's the deal? Well, it's in all those places. And, and I just wanted to mention that uh, one of the things I'm very proud of is that Kelly Slater got a hold of me when he knew I was doing this book. And he said, Matt, I have got to write the foreword. I mean, this is important. And I went, Kelly, yes, of course you can. So it's got a really groovy uh, forward by Kelly. But I mean, you can get it on Amazon. You can go to D'Angelo Publishing, D-I space Angelo Publishing. You can go um, into bookstores. I've got book signings coming up, but, and I really hope people, uh, I really hope people seek this book out and find it. If you're a lover of surfing, you'll be a lover of this book. Hey, Matt, thank you so much. Really enjoyed that. Thanks so much for taking time to do it. That's my deep pleasure. I really enjoyed it. So there you go. That was me and Matt George, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and I hope the context that I gave it at the beginning didn't influence your enjoyment of it too much. So there you go. That was me and Matt George, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I've got to admit, when Matt was saying, well, I've been everywhere, in answer to my question about the environment he'd love to surf in, I was thinking, well, you've not been to a shit-piped dorney 
on a howling southwesterly January morning, have you? Um, maybe I'll take him up on that offer. I'll go to Barling. He comes and gets stuck in down the marina with Cliff, Gene, Tim and the rest of the Brighton crew. And, uh, and we'll swap notes. So how did I do? Well, I really enjoyed it and I thought we got there in the end. In hindsight, I think the beach grit question was fair. And, and, I, and I felt like I had to ask it. After all, if your guest kicks off by mentioning beach grit and then says he thinks surf discourse is suffering from a race to the bottom in search of clicks and attention, then I think it's a pretty obvious question to ask. And in, you know, in the light of what I was talking about in terms of trying to get Matt off his track, he was obviously a little bit uncomfortable talking about that, but that was kind of what I was after. I wanted him to talk about things that he hadn't come ready for. If you've been listening for a while, you could probably audibly hear me at points try to find a way to break us away from some of the stories that Matt is obviously so well practiced at telling. But then again, when a man's stories are that good, sometimes you just got to sit back and let him tell them. So overall, I was pretty happy. I found Matt's thoughts on creativity in the podcast format in particular to be fascinating, compelling and extremely insightful. So yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for your generosity. Thanks for being so reasonable when I ballsed up the time zones today before. And I hope you have um, taken my musings about our conversation in the introduction of this part in the spirit in which they are intended, which is really just to kind of drop the curtain a little bit for people listening on how this all works, really. So housekeeping corner the part of the show that sorts out the regulars from the fly-by-nights, the diehards from the ingenues, the lifers from the part-timers. If you're listening at this point, if you've not switched off, because let's remind ourselves, most people switch off their podcasts at this point or they've already done so. But if you're still here, I'm going to invite you to join me in a rousing rendition of the by now traditional, thank fuck they've gone. And yep, as we've discussed well, as I mentioned, I'm in Normandy at my new place. Um, it's been a great month or so, to be honest. Beautiful part of the world I find myself in. There's a lot of wildlife around here, which I'm enjoying very much. There's a koi poo in the canal down the road, a couple of deer that live in the next field, a goshawk that lives in a tree next door, wrens nesting in the wall. You know, there's, I think there's like a thousand storks at the wetland at the end of the lane. It's pretty great. Really enjoying it. Um, the internet is shit, so that distraction is pretty much out of the window. And we've generally been hunkering down, me and Boog, working hard each day, either in my case on the tippy-tappy laptop shit or actually doing some, you know, learning and labouring on the project. I've been spending the evening actually reading books and listening to music. It's been like the 90s and I've been drinking way too much French cooking lager and uh, red football wine. I have thoroughly enjoyed myself. If you follow me on Instagram, you can find me at We Look Sideways. You'll know I've been posting the odd video showing some of the stuff we've been doing with the house. And yeah, I mean, it's a massive job, this. If we can get the main house close to finish in five years, I'd say that's the result. And then we've got an acre of land. So if we can get the whole thing in some kind of order in a decade, I'm going to think that's a really good result. And that's been a very interesting experience for me. When I first came out earlier this year, I brought my uh, usual run headlong at life, write enough to-do lists and we can get it done approach with me, which in hindsight was not very helpful. Um, So with some very patient coaching from my wife, who's worked on plenty of builds over the years through her work, I've come to realize that that just isn't going to be possible um, (laughs) 
fuckwit that I am, that's been very liberating and it's helped in a few other areas, such as the aforementioned Patagonia pro- project. So me being me, as usual, I've been thinking about this a lot and I'm sort of halfway through a blog about it, which I'll be posting soon over on Substack. I do find writing about things helps me understand them. So I'm taking my time over that one and enjoying learning new things about myself, enjoying being a beginner for the first time in my life because like a lot of people, I hate being a beginner. And I'm enjoying how much I'm learning every day about what the reality of this project is going to be. So um, it's been good. And that's about the size of it, really. So I'm going to sign off. I will say thanks once again to Matt for the great conversation. And if you're still listening to you for supporting what I do in my very weird little corner of the internet. All right. Nice one. I'll see you next time.